0: From Live Consulting, this is Cannabis Business Minds with your hosts, Kristen Yoder and Simone simuluka Radzins.
1: On this episode of Cannabis Business Minds, we're talking about Oregon lab testing and some upcoming regulation that is going to impact and already has impacted both cannabis operators and the public.
0: And considering it's such an integral part of regulation, In any state, but especially its effects that it's had on Oregon, we have three guests with us instead of just one to provide us with a more comprehensive view of the current state and where they're going in Oregon.
1: So who we have today, we've got Cedar Gray. He's the CEO of Siskiyou Sun Grown. We've got Bethany Sherman, who's the CEO of OG Analytical Lab. And we've got Kevin Walsh, managing director of CO2 Company. Yes. So that was
0: obviously just us saying your name. So we'll give each one of you a turn to give a little background on you. If you want to start, Cedar.
2: Okay. Well, um, yeah, like you guys mentioned, I'm the CEO and uh, co-founder of Siskiyou Sungrown. Uh, three years ago, my wife and I founded Siskiyou Sungrown. Uh, we we are OLCC processors and producers um we um have a uh, tier 2 farm here in the Williams Valley in the Siskiyou Mountains of Southern Oregon. Uh, we grow entirely organically. Um I've been uh using and uh cultivating cannabis since the 1980s. Um Siskiyou Sun Grown's flagship product is uh, a uh decarboxylated oil uh commonly known as uh, Rick Simpson oil. Um And uh, let's see, I've recently been serving on the uh, OHA Rules Advisory Committee on Testing, uh, and that's where I first became aware of uh, the proposed changes that we'll be discussing
1: today. Awesome. Thank you. Bethany, what about you?
3: Sure. Um, I am the the founder and CEO, as you mentioned, of OG Analytical, which is an analytical laboratory that does uh, consumer safety regulatory compliance testing for the cannabis industry. We're based in Eugene, Oregon, and uh, we've been in business since early 2014. Mm -hmm. Um, We are fully OLCC licensed and OLAP accredited for every regulatory compliance service um, for testing cannabis in the state of Oregon. Uh, We kind of uh, established ourselves early on uh, in this industry as being um, specialists in pesticide testing. So we focused a lot on um, driving the industry toward a, a more robust uh, pesticide testing and consumer safety um, regulatory schema regarding pesticide testing for cannabis. Um, that included... Uh, I was also a co-founder for the Cannabis Safety Institute hmm. um, and was on the Rules Advisory Committee for uh, lab testing when the original October 1 draft rules, or excuse me, the October 1 rules were implemented Um We've done a lot of work, I think, uh, with the regulate, um, the legislature to try to promote good consumer safety testing, um, with also trying to balance uh, how to uh, maintain a robust and successful market at the same time.
1: Awesome. And Kevin, what about you, last but not least?
3: Um, my name's Kevin Walsh,
4: one of the founding partners and the managing director of the CO2 company. We've been in operation since early 2014 with the launch of House Bill 3460, allowing dispensaries and uh, more businesses to open up in the state of Oregon. We recently received our OLCC processing and wholesale licenses, and we've been kind of at the forefront, at least on the processing and producer side of educating farmers and processors on the uh, potential realities of compounds in extracts and how that relates from the farm to the processor. Um, We have a couple years of really amazing data of working with a lot of outdoor farmers in Southern Oregon, um, seeing that a lot of the compounds we've been failing in our process are not the super gnarly ones that are in the news, but a lot of these are unrelisted, uh, organic, so to say, uh, compounds. And so our business uh, has been very focused on education with the farmers, uh, processors, and the consumers.
1: For all of us that don't know, I mean, you guys clearly, you're OLC licensed. Um, You've understood you are participating so much into the Oregon community, right? And can you walk us through the evolution (laughs) of, you know, measure, House HB 91 or Measure 91 passes? You know, it took a while, it took, I think, almost uh, nine months before, you know, something was enacted. Walk us through the timeline, will you, of, you know, the initial passing as it relates to regulation and pesticides uh, and, and why we're having this discussion right now.
4: My take on it and our company's stance and my observations of watching the the initial proposed rules was for, is it 64 compounds that are being tested? Oh, we have 59, 59. on our current list. 59? So when the initial proposed rules came out for the 59, uh, mm-hmm. that was 2015, I want to say. We watched um, a multitude of labs pop up in the state, and as our company, we started working with multiple labs, um, testing products. Some of it was out of ease of distance. Um, some of it was out of marketing and reputation. We, we started working with a handful of different labs and we met, uh, Bethany from OG analytical and, uh, and also Roger, the, uh, her partner Mm -hmm. and started seeing the, some of the signs coming out of there. We, we watched, it felt like labs were beginning to test for, say, dairy products, but they were testing for eggs. They weren't testing for the lactose and the casein. So there was a lot of false readings going around the industry for uh, a lot of 2015 and 2016. We were seeing, you know, we were bringing in material. We would fail it through OG, and it would get sold to a competitor and be on the shelf, uh, you know, weeks later. Wow. And... This past year, uh, 2016, when they initiated the rules to get Orlab certified, and there began to be a uh, more of a level playing field with the labs. Um, one, it felt good on our company standpoint that there was actually some some standards to be uh, held to in the lab scene. I don't know if that was a
0: good explanation of that. Well, the, the lab is the regulator, essentially, okay. right? So you need regulations for the regulators. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So if I can jump in here, um, when we, so we got our start um, in early 2014 when the dispensary law came into effect. The very first set of cannabis testing rules that came into effect um, required that all cannabis that, dis- that were sold through dispensaries had to be tested for potency, mold, and pesticides. Um, but it only um, required that we test for broad classifications of pesticides, which um, is, there are literally thousands of pesticide compounds within those four broad classifications, and it's completely um, untenable to, to think that any laboratory could um could test for every single one of those pesticides. And so what that did was it left labs to pick and choose which pesticide compounds they wanted to test for. So we might have, um, for example, I like to to relate this to um, aquatics because it's a little bit easier to digest. So for example, if a lab was required to test for fruits, nuts, vegetables, and legumes, for example, you might have one laboratory that's testing for strawberries, um, pecans, uh, celery, and lentils. Uh, and you might have another one that's testing for um, blueberries and, and carrots and um, almonds and, and lima beans or something. And so you have two different sets of a labs testing two different sets of things, but both of them might be compliant. You have a producer going to one lab and uh, and and having a test done where there might be some contamination in it, but it's not getting found because the lab's just not testing for it. And then you might have them go to another lab and and have it get caught or. Then we have this alternative option, this alternative view in that, at that point, the labs weren't, um, there's no oversight or regulation over the labs. So who's to say that, it, that those labs were even um, qualified or have the appropriate instrumentation to do that testing? So there was a good possibility then that any number of pesticide treatments could marked the place and still fall under the, the regulatory compliance requirements.
1: Kevin, you mentioned originally that there's like 64 compounds. And then Bethany, you know, you're like, okay, there's 59. How is this comparing with Colorado and with Washington? I remember reading, you know, that Oregon had a lot of like the list of pesticides was relatively long. Yeah. Now, to be clear, um, neither Washington or Colorado currently require pesticide
3: testing. Wow. Um, what? They, they, have, they have pesticide testing regulations. So um, producers are not allowed to use them, but the labs are, they're not required to have pesticide testing done before the finished product goes to market. Um, it's more of a, um, like a, a regulatory compliance thing where if they use something, they have to put it on a label. And then if they get caught, um, there's a potential for recalls. And so we've seen a lot of recalls happening in, in Colorado specifically, but also in Washington because of this. <laughs> wow. So I think that's why into Oregon because Oregon actually has these substantial pesticide testing regulations with a specific list. So there's a level playing field all the labs are looking for the same list of pesticides um, and and we're reducing that potential for recalls to happen because we're catching things before it goes to market.
0: It's just too bad that Oregon had to be the playing ground where you learn how much, you know, how much required pesticide testing will shut down a market, you know it's probably one of the reasons they haven't required it in Washington and Colorado is it's such a big undertaking.
1: Yeah. And also, I mean, one of the things we were talking with Jeff Raber from um, the workshop last episode, and I mean, the question is like how the regulations for the labs, right? And if people are looking at pecans and pistachios, and how how does that all make sense? So you kind of painted this picture of, okay, this is what was the original requirement, and then, will you talk to us a little bit about, you know, that's kind of what you had to do in the very beginning. And then we remember reading, and I'm sure probably a lot of you face this, what happened in October with the bottleneck of lab testing and, and um, you know, companies going out of business, and how does that relate to what we're talking about right now? Cedar, do you want to uh, elaborate on that a little bit?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, well, starting in October uh the new um orlap accreditation um, took effect um labs need to have labs that uh test for pesticides for the full compliance test need to have orlap accreditation um and initially there were what were there two labs with uh orlap accreditation for pesticides for a few weeks there
3: October 1 yeah there were only two it took OG analytical we weren't uh, accredited until uh, October 12 so it took us a couple days to get in there too.
2: okay and so um, so a bottleneck definitely occurred uh, in testing early on uh, particularly with pesticide testing. Um, I think that I think some unfortunate things may have happened in the industry then uh, my understanding is that uh, there was tremendous pressure. To uh, get more labs accredited. Um, And uh, my understanding is that now there are questions about the thoroughness of the accreditation process for um, some of those later labs. Uh, That process may have been rushed and it was definitely occurred under a tremendous political pressure. Um, Now, uh, you know, we have, there's plenty of labs accredited now. I believe multiple labs are operating under capacity, um, but we still have an issue where uh, there's an issue of confidence in the, in the labs mm. um, that we're still having an issue where, uh, you know, many within the industry believe that there are labs that you can go to, to get the results that you want to um, not necessarily the true results. Um, now I'm, I believe that, uh, you know, strong lab oversight with teeth would take care of this. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't lay the blame anywhere because I think this entire process has been an amazing pioneering process. where mm-hmm. uh, we're, you know, inventing something here that hasn't existed before. Um, so I cut everyone in the, you know, all segments of the industry slack. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now I do believe we need to have, uh, lab oversight with teeth in order to bring, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, industry and, uh, consumer confidence in the labs. Um, there's, you know, there's plenty of accredited labs operating, but, uh, there are still some questions about the consistency of their procedures and results.
0: Yes. I actually worked for Jeffrey Raber at the workshop. Uh, so, And I've been in the cannabis industry 11 years myself, and there is, I mean, when the lab is made the regulator, but then no one's watching them, they have great power, and it's a lot easier for a lab to charge less money and give favorable results and get more business than a lab that charges more, does it correctly, and prevents a company from going to market or having to yeah. destroy their entire crop yeah so and I've talked to Jeff about it he said that you have to do the same exact standardized procedures and from the same library of molecules or I am not a scientist for the record so I'm not totally sure what I'm saying but You have to do it exactly the same at each place to even get the same results in the first place. And in California, we're totally not regulated. All the labs test differently, unfortunately. And it's like, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, get regulated. Especially when formulating. How do you know which result to trust?
1: Yeah. And so I remember in Oregon, you've done process validation. So I think some of the earlier stakeholders would go get their entire process validated through the lab. Kevin, can you explain kind of your you know walk us through how your company did that? You know when you understood the regulations and how you would work with the lab and if you had to get your process validated.
3: Yeah,
4: that process we've been working on for probably about sixteen months um, wow.
1: with the initial
4: proposed rules. The um, yeah, I pulled up a little bit of data of some of the stuff we had from twenty sixteen of. Um, the amount of material that comes through our system that we did return. And these are, these are rough numbers, but it's a pretty good general uh, assumption of it's it's roughly, we had, I won't go into weights, but out of the material that came in, we had 58% of it passed, you know, no detection of any kind of pesticides through our uh, extraction process and the other 42% was a fail. And it was quite a bit of material. And seeing the the ability to not cross-contaminate material, uh, which can happen so easily when testing in the parts per million, the parts per billion, and extraction levels, uh, using different solvents, uh, small drops of material will cross-contaminate entire batches of, you know, five, 10 pounds of oil doesn't take much to ruin. Mm -hmm. And we've been working on that process for about a year and a half and it hasn't been easy, but it, at the same time, it's not, uh, it's not impossible. It's not rocket science. It's all based off of other industries and what they've had to do to, um, comply with FDA and other regulatory systems that, you know, Mm -hmm. govern our food and drink and water, uh, yeah, uh, the process validation. To I guess um, you know a lot of the stuff we've been working on came. We started looking at the the peanut butter industry had a one of the largest recalls in U.S. history that um, mm-hmm. had contaminated material go into uh, about four thousand different products, and it was almost a billion dollar recall. And we started looking at some of their systems and. Um, and hired on a couple chemists and specialty folks to help us build a, a very robust quality control system
1: yeah.
0: that
4: now we're pretty confident, very confident in.
0: That's really smart. And that's another, with the canvas industry being so new, mm-hmm. we forget, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of other industries that are already held to a higher standard that we could learn from. So that was really smart. Yeah.
4: Well, I guess, and two, I guess to, to finish that point, you know, the, the proposed rules that are beginning to come down the pipeline right now, it's, um, you know, we're not a heavily funded company. We haven't taken outside money. We're um, bootstrapping Oregonians that have been at this, uh, you know, since the laws have allowed, and we've built these systems that do work. We haven't failed a final test in quite a while. And it's it's nice. not impossible. It just takes time, hard work, and patience.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's
4: doable.
1: Yeah, yep. it's doable. And so I guess I want to hear a little bit more about, you know, what can people be doing to do that I mean I think the misconception is that oh my god I'm gonna run it I'm gonna go out of business like what happens like you failed a test right that's significant how do you recoup from that as an operator and how can we explain to people that this is a very important thing not only for public health and safety but just as an industry as a whole and you know Bethany mentioned that this is you know Oregon is like one of the strictest in states doing it so clearly that's why we're seeing some of the hiccups But can you elaborate on what does that, how does that impact your business? Kevin, uh, Cedar, if you guys both, I I don't know who wants to go first. But, you know, if you're failing something, how can you recover from that and still move on?
2: Well, my answer is pretty short and sweet because we've never failed the test. Boom, Um, do it right. Yeah, we, um, we're vertically integrated. We only process what we grow, and uh, we grow organically. Um, the area that we live in is a pristine environment, um, and so in three years and 150 tests, we've never failed the test. Um, that being said, you know, we could be over-sprayed by – I mean, fortunately, we don't have road crews spraying the roads around us. We don't have forestry crews spraying the forest around us the surrounding properties don't have uh, agriculture going on so we we're in an excellent environment but for example say our neighbor did something unsafe and we were oversprayed um you know on our field because we're vertically integrated and we depend on our crop uh, for our processing you know that that could be potentially devastating for us I never um, and thought i of think that. just mm-hmm. one of the big lessons for every all newcomers into the industry is it's absolutely crucial to do all of the due diligence possible above and beyond due diligence to make sure that uh, your your production methods are going to be clean. Because as Kevin mentioned, we're talking about parts per million and parts per billion. So you need to examine every single possible contamination source in your production.
0: Wow. I never thought about how easy it would be to get contaminated, but that's a really good point. And it depends on the
4: compound. I mean... For us, we're not vertically integrated. We work with uh, you know, over the past. It's probably been in the range of sixty to seventy-five farms on a pretty regular basis in so the medical market. OLCC, there's a lot more production. It's a lot bigger. Mm-hmm. We'll be slimming down to probably under ten farms that we work with. But the it, we've developed questionnaires that are hybrids out of the Oregon Tilth program. You know that go over everything from every pesticide used when. You know, Looking at um, your seed and clone stock, if you have a clone that's coming from a clone farm that was dipped in a clone gel that had mycobutanol and it's a systemic compound, I will see it in the extract nine months later in an outdoor crop. Oh, okay. uh, if you're using a uh, big one that was used a few years ago was a product that contains spinosad, which is no longer allowed in Oregon, but we saw if it was used outdoor in August, it would fail our tests for a harvest in October, but if it was used in July, we'd find no detection.
0: Wow.
4: And that's the breaking down of the compounds uh, under sunlight and normal conditions.
1: Do you have a pretty thorough process then when you are onboarding, you know, a potential vendor, like your own, com- like, I guess, due diligence and compliance to ensure, Or like, how does, how does it work also in Oregon? Are you required to get it lab tested before you can take uh, possession of it to extract?
4: For extraction, no. Currently, that's not the case. I can take in Uh, From the recreational market, product, uh, byproduct, or flower that's not tested, bring it into my facility, um, do our quality control tests on it, Mm -hmm. and determine if I want it or not. The new proposed rules, my understanding is if the material is tested and comes into my facility, I don't have to test my extract either.
1: Hmm. Interesting, Bethany. Can you talk to us about you know this new revision to the rules? Um, you being from the lab world, I would love for you to kind of elaborate. Like, what does this mean? What are the changes? Uh, and just walk us through that.
3: Sure. So um, the pre-October one rules um, required that 100% of products that were tested batches had to be had to be tested for um, before being brought to market. Um, the October one rule suggested that, that every 10 pound batch of flowers had to be tested and then all concentrates and edibles, topicals, things like that had to undergo the process validation before being able to take the product to market. And um, we've had, um, three rollbacks on those rules already. And this is the fourth rollback that we're looking at. The way the rules stand today after our first three rollbacks is that, um, we now test, 33% of all the flower batches that go to market. So one out of every three 10-pound batches gets tested of flower. Um, and we rolled back the process validation to something called a control study, which is a, a modified version of the process validation that's a, a bit more accessible and, and uh, uh, it's less testing. So rather than the process validation was three batches of 20 tests, the control study is based on the batch size and can be anywhere from four to 32 samples, uh, and and I think that's that makes it definitely more accessible for the producer. Um, uh, once they've got the the control study done, then they, they only have to test a field primary and a field duplicate. Um, the the temporary rules that or sorry the um, the draft rules that are being proposed now um, would cut the flower testing down from one in every three batches to one in every five batches. And then it would also reduce, like Kevin said, um, the pesticide testing on concentrates to once a year, provided that the concentrate manufacturer was making the product from flour that was already tested. Um, I think which like is that... insane.
1: Well, I I I don't want to I don't want to <laughs> interrupt, say, but like when insane. you just told us that something tests different in June and August, same thing, like that's once a year is a little. Like we like to do operational list. We like that's ins- once a year is not enough from an audit perspective of and, anything. Yeah,
4: and, and too, on our part, we do have a wholesale division, so we we deal a lot with tested final flower. Yeah, trim and extracts, and we see we have we've seen it time and time again. A flower there'll be no detection on the trim if we test the trim, which gets expensive. Just doing a raw trim test, we might might. Might see something there, but when we extract it, fifty percent of the time there's something there. So and the thing top, is, like level.
3: the thing is about this is that when when concentrate manufacturers are extracting, so the the whole purpose of of the extraction right is to concentrate the the cannabinoids that you're interested in. So mm-hmm. we're looking for a high THC product, we're looking for a high CBD product. So we extract it with um, CO2 or butane or um, whatever other solvent or solventless method that the producer is making, the idea is to concentrate the cannabinoids. Well, you're not just concentrating the cannabinoids, you're also concentrating any pesticide contamination that's in it. So you might have a trace level of pesticide contamination in the flour or the trim material that's, that's possibly even not detectable um, at lab testing. And then once it's extracted, it's, it's way over the limit. So that really, um, that in a, of itself makes this new proposed rule change. Um in my opinion it's it's um it's an egregious violation of consumer safety and and protection of consumer safety.
0: What I what I wonder about this is who picks the sample to get tested? Could it be that the cultivators are like, oh Like, let's take this bud that has the best-looking trichomes or whatever, or depends where they took it from to make sure that they get better results. Like, where's the quality control on the actual samples?
3: That's a great question. So before October 1, the producer could bring in their sample if they wanted to. Um, As of October 1, the the only... Uh, people who can do the sampling are have to be accredited by ORLAP for their sampling protocol. And today, that's just the laboratories. We do have some laboratories that have popped up just to do the sampling. They've gotten accredited just for sampling. Mm-hmm. Um, and laboratories can subcontract to those sampling labs, but the the sampler does have to be accredited for the sampling protocol.
0: That's that's comforting. I think some. I mean, you can take a sample oh. from anywhere, um, but mm-hmm. it's good to have generally a non-interested party be the go-between
1: question though um Oregon do you can you I mean it's an independence lab and security in my mind should always be independent from just you know segregation of duties uh can you have any other license if you have a license for a lab in Oregon oh
3: that's a good question I I don't I think
1: I know the answer to that. (laughs) I hope not, because you don't want that. Like that's that's the point. Like you don't want to. It's like who's good. I mean, you. It's like oh, I'm gonna audit. It's just that doesn't make sense. You need to have yourself, yourself, and you're gonna find. You know the you're gonna pass with flying colors and not look at something. Yeah. Cedar, what do you think for you? I know you're vertically integrated, um, but what's how does this impact you? What are your thoughts on this um, upcoming proposed regulation?
2: I think it would be absolutely devastating to the industry. Um, you know, I, I, I probably sound dramatic when I say that, but I absolutely believe in the creation of an organic industry. Um, you know, I think that we have an opportunity here to create an industry that will be a model worldwide, not only for cannabis production, but for food production. Um, you know, the standards that we started out with here in, uh, on October 1st Um, I believe are some of the strictest standards in any industry in the world. Uh, And I'm really proud of that. And there's many companies, uh, small companies and large companies, that are demonstrating they're passing all of their tests or they're cleaning up their supply chains if they weren't, and they're showing that it's absolutely possible to do successful business with rigorous pesticide testing. Um, Our our company, Siskiyou Sun Grown, has developed a solid reputation for clean product because of that, we're able to sell our product at a premium. Um, if this proposed rules change, uh, took effect, uh, our company would actually lose significant value mm-hmm. because the, uh, the painstaking work that we have gone into clean production would no longer have a value in this industry. Uh, to me, that would be extremely frustrating, both personally and professionally. Yeah. Uh, I think this idea of, you know, once a year, uh, random testing is very close to no testing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, what about those producers who get, or those processors who get tested in January or February? You know, what? Yeah. for the rest of the year, they can be pretty confident that uh, they're not going to be tested. And... You know, the good actors, This I think this is a key point, is these rules are not made for the good actors in the industry. The good actors in the industry mm-hmm. are already Doing producing next. and processing clean product. Mm. Um, these rules are made for the bad actors in the industry, and there's no way that anyone can pretend that there are not bad actors in the industry because 50% of the product is dirty. Yeah. Now, I don't imply that all of that product was intentionally produced using unsafe methods. But with 50% fail rates, mm-hmm. I think it's clear that they are there are many bad actors in this industry and we need to clean it up. Um, you know, Kevin's talked about the peanut recall. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, there's been news, there was a massive recall of cannabis products in Canada. Mm-hmm. And the company that uh, sold the contaminated products was unable, absolutely unable, to trace the source of the contamination. I think that that would open up Oregon agencies and Oregon companies to, Mm -hmm. you know, not only uh, recalls, but lawsuits, and uh, in the current political climate, possible federal intervention. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, And unfortunately, the threat is necessary for people to grow correctly. California is... Like 90% dirty, if not more. I quit smoking and dabbing altogether, which is crazy because I don't trust anything in California anymore unless it's comprehensively screened. And like you were saying, it will cost more. The product costs more because you're paying for quality. Mm-hmm. And why would somebody pay for better product when there's... When they don't know it's Yeah, then there's nothing really setting you apart.
1: Okay, but I mean, like, from the finance perspective, and, you know, Kevin is a great example, like, you know, no capital backing, he's running a company, a successful one, bootstrapping it, he's still okay with this, right? And I think that, you know, you listen to opposition, oh, my God, it's just going to put us out of business, it's going to change the price, uh, people are going to go to the black market, talk to us why that's not true.
4: Uh, I'm not saying that's not true. That is happening around the industry. People are going out of business. People are diverting. Mm -hmm. It's it's a hard time right now. Okay. Very hard.
1: Uh, But with this new impact of pesticides or, you know, like this proposed regulation of, you know, reducing the amount of time to test, I mean, what are the costs associated with it? That's what I mean. Like, is it, is it a material cost that could tip somebody from going out of business?
3: Uh,
4: For us, I think on the cost per gram, I think um, it's definitely increased. I mean, it's it's not astronomical. It's Mm -hmm. you know we're looking in the it's definitely under a dollar per gram. I want to say it's uh, off the top of my head. I want to say it's like forty cents a gram is what it costs us to do three screens of testing, a pre, a mid, and a final. Yeah. On the size of batches, we've had to increase. It's caused us to scale up and. Uh, force us to get a little bigger to handle the volume um, you know discounts because there is I believe the are proposed rules where if it's you know five pounds of oil versus 10 pounds of oil, there's um, a certain amount of sampling that needs to happen. So we've had to our business models have had to change and get a little larger um, to deal with some of these costs. Mm. But, and,
1: okay. Bethany, from your perspective, um, gee, you anticipate that these, you know, if we don't do, if we, it stays with the same, you know, like what's happening right now and the proposed regulation, um, doesn't go through. Do you think that would impact some of the operators that you're working with? And if so, what, what would you suggest of why it's still important? Well,
3: I think that, um, that first of all, this is still a fledgling industry, um, mm-hmm. We still have a lot of producers out there who are are new. Um, uh, most of us are new. Um, OG Analytical is only three years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're all still trying to figure this whole thing out. Um, there's a lot of new ma- producers in the market that have never even heard of GMP, good manufacturing practices. And I think that um, CO2 company has actually been a really good example of, um, of implementing good manufacturing practices when they hired a chemist. Um, they're the only company yet who's come in and done an audit of our lab. Like we, mm. we encourage people to do that type of, of work. You should have a chemist who knows what they're doing that comes in to make sure. Before we had a regulations, over labs, CO2 company had their chemist come in and um, who was knowledgeable about analytical chemistry come in and look at all of our paperwork, look at all of our methods, look at everything that we do, and make sure that we're that we're doing a good job. Um, and not only that, but with the implementation of their their micro extraction method, which is part of their good manufacturing practices, they're able to, to isolate any potential issues with the product before they actually purchase that giant batch of flour, Mm. um, to convert it into the concentrate. So, um, I think that's a implementation of things like GMP, uh, are going to help any producer to be able to be successful under a heavily regulated market. And I, I think that, you know, with, with all of us being so new to this, um, most people are just not familiar with that. And we also had, we had the first three years of operation where we were not regulated at all. Uh-huh. And um, and we got used to that schema where the, the the testing was really inexpensive. It was really fast because there was a lot of labs competing for market share. Uh-huh. Um, and now that we have the regulation um, and we have fewer labs in the market because fewer labs have been able to our confidence to do this work. The um, and and there's a lot more work to do now that the labs are accredited. The cost of testing has gone up. Mm-hmm. The turnaround time has extended. And I think there's been a lot of pushback against these rules simply because of those two things. And people are are um, are you know they I, frankly that I, I think that the industry just kind of got spoiled during that time that we we didn't have regulation. And now that it's here, it's an opportunity for us to really start to legitimize the industry as we mature. Um, as companies within this industry try, all trying to find success. Uh, I think as we see with both Cedar and Kevin's cases that, and, and these are not the only two producers in the state of Oregon, too, who have been successful under this. We have a lot of clients who have been able to achieve success under the current regulations uh, with getting their, their product to market by, uh, you know, implementing good business practices yeah. and, and making sure that um, that they can uh, produce a, a clean product and, and get it tested. And, and we've heard also, so in regards to the cost of the testing itself, uh, again, it, it depends on how large your batch size is. If, if you have a, if we have to test one in every three 10 pound batches, if you've got a two pound batch, obviously it's going to be a little bit more expensive than if you have a 10 pound batch, same thing with your concentrates. Um, but, uh, we've heard from industry specifically, um, that that it's not actually the cost of the testing that it's that's the issue. It's the cost of lost product. Hmm. So when the laboratory finds pesticides and the, and the producer can't get the product to market, you know they they've lost all of that. Especially if they're not doing a, a micro extraction like what Kevin's company is doing. If they've purchased a hundred pounds of flour and converted that all to mm-hmm. a concentrate, that's a big big loss for that company. So I think that it's really going to be important uh, for the for the players in the industry to implement systems like that uh, to help make sure that they're not experiencing those heavy losses. And I think that it's really, the current regulations are really tenable. Um, I do think that there's some things that could be um, fixed. It's obviously not a perfect solution. Mm -hmm. Um, There actually are a few things in the proposed rule changes um, that, that make a lot of sense. Uh, One thing that the current rules do not not allow currently is remediation of failed products. and, and that to me just is that. ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and the proposed rules do allow for remediation. And then, so there's a couple little things I've, I, you know, I, frankly, I'd love to see implemented, but the reduction in pesticide testing really just doesn't make sense for this industry.
1: Agreed. No, it, it doesn't. I mean, I'm all about that. And I think you, you know, hit it on the head. It's that and that's what I think I was trying to point out, is that I understand that the cost to test is expensive. But when you can run a business well, and you have, you know, you're bootstrapped, but you're efficient, and you've managed the process, and you have best practices, and you've done something like Kevin's done, where, you, you know, do a, my, a, a mini test, and you go in first, and you've really thought about your business in that way, then this could be costly, but it's not a significant portion. It's not material. And that's, I think, what I was waiting to hear, because I know that it uh, people might Thinking it's super costly, yeah. But if you can really manage everything, you'll be able to do it,
0: and not by losing your material if you fail, and then you can't. You don't have anything to show for it. That's that's a really good incentive to have GMP structure so that you're able to operate, and it's only fair that those who do operate correctly succeed, and those who don't fail.
1: Yeah. No, I mean. We're like the justice people. Yeah. But.
0: Well, as someone who dabs, I mean, pesticide concentration—that's crazy. You know, that's a yeah. health issue.
1: Well, and that was our—that was our next question. Is for those of us or those listeners who are out there that don't realize why we're emphasizing this, why we're having a special podcast for you guys, the importance of lab testing, the importance of pesticides, quality control. Talk to us about why we care. Why we need to care.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I can start on this one. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of reasons why we should care, but um, uh, to start, a lot of people like to compare cannabis with food, and and there's a, a big suggestion out there that cannabis is tested way more than than food is tested, and um, and that it's uh, that it's uh, unnecessary that we test cannabis so much. Um, but that's one and and for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, it doesn't account for the fact that our system processes toxins differently if we eat it versus smoke it um when yeah. you when you eat a product of a, a, a toxin your body your body's organs filter that to- most of that toxin out so you've got you know the process of your your liver and your kidneys that, that help mm. clean a lot of that stuff out when you smoke cannabis mm-hmm. it gets absorbed into your bloodstream directly through the capillaries in your lungs mm-hmm. so that's a that's issue number one that that suggest we shouldn't be comparing it to food. Um, number two, uh, this is still, again, it's a fledgling industry, and we have high pesticide find rates. In, um, in agriculture, like blueberries and strawberries, corn, etc. cetera, um, we – those industries have been around for a long time. Uh, those producers know what they're do, what they doing. They have resources available to them. They can get pesticide applicators licenses. They can go to their uh, local extension service if they have a mold or pests or something so that they can uh, learn the appropriate products to use and when to use them, how late to use them in the cycle, and how much of that product to use to ensure that the final finished product is still going to be safe for consumption um, and meet regulatory compliance requirements. Cannabis producers don't have those resources available to them. Mm. Uh, it, it just hasn't historically existed because it's so new to the regulatory compliance space. Um, uh, also, um, if if there are products out there that are found to have, like um, fish, for example, we had a, a, a mercury scare not that long ago with fish. Um, I, I think it was in Oregon. Uh, where there was a a high level of mercury that was found through random testing in fish. Mm -hmm. And so when that happens, the Department of Agriculture or, or, you know, if it's a federal level, it would be the FDA that would come in and do it, um, would start an investigation in that. And if they find that a lot of that product is contaminated, then they're going to move into a risk-based testing schema, which um, which creates a a need for much more extensive and rigorous testing of products Uh, like that across the market. So in that case, we would see most of that uh, same type of fish getting tested for mercury. Um, So if you look at the fail rates in cannabis, uh, we see them so high that in most cases, it's it's well beyond what any risk-based testing schema um, would, or what would be a catalyst for a risk-based testing schema for any ag products. Uh, So really, um, cannabis is not treated differently than, than ag products or than any other product that should be tested. It's still fledgling and it's still a high risk product because we find so many contaminants in it still. Um, so I I think that, that the comparison is really, um, it's, a it's, it's kind of, um, it's a poor comparison and, and cannabis should really be, um, I think looked at more as, uh, Medicine as as having a need for the, that more extensive
0: testing. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah. There's another point I'd like to make on that is that uh, a significant and increasing uh, proportion of cannabis users are using it for uh, strictly medical purposes. Um, exactly. These are, you know, many of these people have uh, already compromised immune systems and. Um, You know, their bodies are less able to deal with uh, toxins that they may be exposed to. They're trying to heal their bodies. You know, many people, you know, our flagship product, our decarboxylated oil, um, is consumed by people who are dealing with, you know, um, life-threatening illnesses or, uh, you know, seeking uh, end-of-life, you know, compassionate care. Um, These are people who absolutely need access to uh, products that have been rigorously tested for toxins
0: yeah okay. i i feel like any product for consumption should be rigorously tested you know regard especially for medical reasons but all consumers should be protected
1: yeah we need to know what's happening uh, with the products that we consume and, and i think
0: yeah also like with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome though they're it didn't exist until recently Mm -hmm. maybe we didn't know what it was in the first place or something like that how do we know how pesticides are going to react with long-term usage through smoking it or vaping it when we don't even recognize that that could be an issue in the first place so better to just solve it now instead of waiting to figure out long-term effects amen that's a really
3: good point the research just hasn't been done on on that yet um a lot of people talk in the cannabis industry mm. about how we've been smoking this stuff for seven years mm-hmm. or for 20 years or for you know since the 70s or whatever and we haven't had any problems but how do we know that we exactly. don't have problems how do you know that, that that person didn't have that that heart attack or that stroke or why you don't have cholesterol issues or you know we don't we just don't know yeah. what if you know what if, the repercussions what are might be from if it's not from that um, we also, in a uh, comment to um, uh, reply to Cedar's comment earlier about um, medical patients, some of these pesticides that we find are actually, uh, we find in cannabis fairly often are, are really ca- pretty nasty compounds um, that, that really shouldn't be used on anything that is being consumed by humans. Um, for example, there's one that we find um, fairly frequently called chlorfenapyr. Chlorofenipir has a lot of peer-reviewed articles about it. Um, It causes demyelination. So for MS patients specifically who have um, issues with their um, deterioration of their myelin sheath, um, smoking something with chlorofenipir in it could exacerbate their, their illness rather than help them. Um, this particular compound um, in studies has uh, shown to be lethal to birds, and uh, there's even a couple of papers out there that show that it has caused um, paralysis and even death in
0: humans. Wow. Yeah, they, they're cancer-causing. A lot of those pesticides have warnings on them that say that they can cause cancer
1: it's crazy yeah i mean i i want to focus on this but i want to get you guys on for another show because this is one of the main issues of okay let's like at least read like deschedule cannabis from one so we can actually start doing some research on this like it's just insane how the i don't think people think about it as much as they really should be like this is still federally illegal we need the support to be able to do the the research and the testing and God, like then with 280E going away, then people would be able to afford lab testing so much more. It's just so sad that it's the federal, you know, the ban resistance. and resistance on this. I don't think people realize that this is still federally legal in in these in much more regulated markets, where it's really crippling us as a community as we advance. Still a public health
0: concern. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so one last question for you guys. Um, we like to think about solutions. You know, we got you on the show because we realized there's a problem that needs to be addressed. And I want to make sure that you've both, that all of you guys have had the opportunity to kind of address that problem and kind of let us know, like for those people that are listening, that now we've talked and really understood kind of how pesticides could affect um, the cannabis operators and the public. We talked about, you know, the the timeline that's happened in Oregon and this upcoming regulation, right? And these draft rules. I, if I was in Oregon, would want to vote no. Like, please, let's not do this. So what kind of solution can we give our listeners right now?
2: Well, um, let's see. It's March 17th. So two days ago, I believe that the public comment period opened up uh, for the Oregon Health Authority. So every individual can submit comments to the uh, Oregon Health Authority. Okay. Um, I don't have the um, exact information handy right here, but you can go to the OHA mm-hmm. website, and and we'll um, put it in submit. our show
1: notes. We'll we'll make sure that everybody okay. in our show notes has access to all the information that we've talked about. So all they have to do is click. Okay, yeah. so they can do that.
2: And then uh, the other thing. Um, the uh, I think that it would be an excellent idea for people in Oregon to write le- uh, letters and uh, send comments to the joint committee, the Oregon Legislature Joint Committee, mm-hmm. uh, which is humorously and accurately named. Mm-hmm. There's uh, ten legislators who, uh, you know, basically decide the legislative course of uh, the cannabis industry. And, uh, you know, they obviously have a tremendous power. So I think uh, they would be the uh, the second people to write to after the OHA.
1: Okay.
3: There's a, a group of um, labs and and even some producers who have joined forces together to form a political action committee called Oregonians for Public Health and Safety. Um, this organization is, is really um, working hard in the legislature right now to try to improve the... the um, the the rules for testing and, and we're hoping to, you know, our primary objective at this point is to um, not allow the state to adopt the the repeal of pesticide testing on cannabis, um, and we could definitely use some help. So, if there are listen, listeners out there who are interested in, in helping us to fight this cause, uh, we do have an opportunity to donate on the website. It's at um, the name of the organization again, is Oregonians for Public Health and Safety, and the website is at orpublichealth.com. Okay,
1: okay, yeah, thank you guys so much for joining our show. Um, we really like to focus on things that are, you know, up to date and happening and that can impact, you know, society. And it was like a a special thing that we wanted to do because it's very important. And we hope that all of our listeners understand that and that we can help you in any way.
0: And considering that Oregon is leading the country, you know, out of all states in their required pesticide testing, we're watching you like what happens in Oregon is, going to have a ripple effect
1: to california especially to everywhere you yeah. know
0: so we are behind what you guys want to do we think that stringent testing and requirements is necessary for us to grow and create a superior product that's safe for everybody so keep up the good work
1: thank you guys thank you so much thanks for having me yeah yeah uh, thank you okay recap of oregon lab Wow, that was such an interesting conversation with uh, CO2 company Siskiyou Sun, Sungrown and OG Analytical Lab about lab testing in Oregon and all of the things that the proposed change in legislation could impact. What do you think?
0: And even beyond that, I didn't realize they were the only state requiring pesticide testing on everything yeah. which i would have thought oregon i mean colorado and washington had those kinds of regulations i think they
1: have the list but i think the they severity yeah it. the severity that oregon does
0: yeah well in those states they can catch you using testing but in oregon that's mm-hmm. the complete barrier to entry if you don't pass your tests yeah which then yeah. i thought from the big like slowdown that shut a bunch of people down in no. Oregon when the rules passed, I thought it was because it was too stringent of testing, but it was just a matter of how many labs were that available
1: were... to do the testing. Exactly, and I think that was probably the biggest misconception, right? Well,
0: it's the ones that have a lot to lose when the testing gets stronger or more required, those are the ones who speak the loudest Mm -hmm. fighting against it so that they can stay in business with subpar quality. Totally. But what do you think? I think it should be more stringent because people have proven that they can operate with a higher mandated pesticide testing program, and that should be the way it is everywhere. Because as we had mentioned in that conversation, when it comes to inhalation, Yeah. It's not the same as when you eat something and your gut biome can, like, you know, kill everything, filter it out. But when you're inhaling something straight into your blood, that's scary, especially the one that she had been talking about that can destroy your myelin sheath, which is the coating around your nerve endings or
1: all of your nerves. Yeah. So if you have MS. It could kill you. Yeah, and and that's so ironic because a lot of people with MS use cannabis. And exactly. so that's why it's so important to have these stringent guidelines and testing and this better to not pass. And it, I think from a business perspective, if you do it right from the very beginning, like Kevin's company, like, they have good manufacturing procedures. They have best practices, right? So I think maybe people are like, oh, it's going to be so expensive. If you know how to manage your business, it's going to be a marginal cost.
0: And you can charge more for a quality product to cover that. I mean, there is a way to do it that works. I think that's a selling point in itself when you know that it's clean, all considering... I mean, what about all of these medical patients in all of these other states, California especially, mm-hmm. that we don't even know? We don't know, and we I think don't that's know. the scariest part. Yeah, absolutely. So final takeaway? Stringent testing should be mandatory. Full, comprehensively screened pesticides. If it's concentrates, residual solvents, even though we didn't talk about it, but it yep. should all... At every step, be tested absolutely to catch the contamination, and if you can't keep up with that
1: you shouldn't be in business. Yeah, absolutely. And so if you're still listening, because this is a little bit longer of an episode, please go to our website where we have the show notes on this and please click the links where we, you know, say how you can help us or well us and I guess the movement of making sure that this doesn't go through. It's very important that you go. So liv-consulting.com backslash podcast and just search for the show notes here. You can make a difference. You can make a difference. So thank you so much for joining Cannabis Business Minds. Yes, have a great day or evening. And rest of your week. Yep. Cannabis Business Minds is recorded by Simone Samaluka-Radzins and Kristin Yoder. Produced and edited by Gustavo Bulgach at East Venice Recording Studios. Podcast music is by Ketza. You can find more episodes of the show on our website, liv-consulting.com, and you can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.